Welcome to episode 452 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. It's that time of year when we put together our best bits and wits of Troubadours and Rock On Tours from 2021. I look forward to sharing with you what I came up with, and I should let you know that this is not a total in any way representation of all the excellent conversations that we had this year. It's really impossible for me to uh, sift through it all. I just kind of randomly grab at uh, certain, I guess, pieces, parts, and share them. I'd like to thank all of this year's contributors and, of course, our associate producer, whom uh, gives so much to this program, Dr. Michael Pavis, who we will be featuring for this year's Best Bits and Wits are Almighty Todd, Nash Rose, Jerry Geddes, Paperboy Love Prince, Debbie Hayton, Martin Amayok, Rob Roth, Nijmi Zarenko, Chris Charlesworth, Lisa Carroll, JQ, Tony Jensen, John Bromberg, and of course, Surf William. We'll also have a poem and some music. And I want to say thank you so much for listening in 2021. And I wish you the best for the coming year. And now let's listen to some of what TNR has done in 2021. I'm sure you don't remember me. And now it's been ten years. I'm still wondering who to be. And I'd love to mix in circles, clicks, and social coteries. That's me. Hand me my nose ring. Can we be happy? Show me the mosh pit. Can we be
former winemaker straight out of Stockbridge, Vermont, our resident philosopher, Almighty Todd. You know, what is... Uh, what does it mean to be a human being and what, what, you know, what are we working toward? Uh, you know, things of, of that nature, um, kind of, as you said, they kind of complement each other. So where do you want to start? Are you with a little Rilke, you know, uh, that, that we could talk about? Uh, there's, there are uh, Eastern philosophers as well. Rilke is a, um, a Western philosopher, I guess you could say. Uh, where do you want to go? Well, you know, the other thing I had wanted to bring up was um, narcissism, which I think kind of fits in with this these concepts because the the one I was ta- I sent to you was about talking about trying to quiet the ego, um, tame it a little bit. The one that you sent was basically about how we are in a state right now where we are losing ourselves into the process of work and busyness and productivity, such that. Um, our ego is being kind of shaped and disappearing into the system. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing about narcissism is that it's a, um, it gets thrown around a lot, you know, in terms of we've just had to deal with some uh, administration driven by narcissism mm-hmm. for four years pretty clearly. Um, and that that person may even fall into the disordered part of the spectrum no doubt let's not like say a his name percent to a per- percent of the population um but there is, is that all there is it really just a half a percent to one percent of the population are narcissists no we're all narcissists we all have a narcissist co- component in ourselves and it's on some degree it's healthy because you're you're keeping up your you're take, looking out for yourself and you know your own reality um so that is an, an important thing but that percentage of the population those are people that fall into what would be called uh diagnosable narcissistic personality disorder um and there are like the two there are actually a spectrum there where there are ones that are the kind of like the boisterous ostentatious kind like we've been seeing but then there's also a vulnerable narcissist kind that where it's a little bit harder to peg but in both cases there's um there's a uh, sense of grandiosity of the self or importance of the self while at the same time having a very fragile self-image yeah yeah um so it it creates a situation where the the narcissist whether they realize or not tries to get other people to join their reality you know to bring to bring people into their reality because everyone else is really just an extension of themselves you know everything else is objectified yeah, and it's there's this inability to discern between the inside and the outside, and em- empathy isn't really em- it may be used as a tool, but it isn't felt or it may be expressed as a a way to be charming or um, to kind of ingratiate, but it's not something that's really experienced. So, anyways, this. I can't understand what you're well, talking about. I really can't feel what you mean. I don't. I'm just okay. I wasn't really paying attention either. I was just thinking about what I need. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, oh, okay. You're back. <laughs> no, I, I no, but that's it. And and that um, this is exactly where I'm going. Is that um, that inability to manage the distinction between the inner and outer world um, is something that we all have to deal with to some degree or another, and 
figure out how we fit into it. And the the thing is that the it's it's as if a lot of society and the mechanisms of our culture kind of are right now demanding of us, asking us to to show ourselves. Thank you, Almighty. Brooklyn-based comedic writer, comedian, singer, and songwriter, Free Spirit, Nash Rose. Have you sat down with anyone that really knows you and is honest with you and, and uh, can tell you which they think you're better suited for? Or do you think you're just as uh, well-suited for either pursuit? I would never sit down and ask somebody what they think I'm better suited for, ever, in my life. Because that would just be their opinion. Well, so I, I guess you, the assumption being you can trust their judgment and their objective, and they have good senses, you know, have a good sense about things of that nature. But I guess you don't know anybody like that at, mo- at the moment. I know a lot of people that I could go to, but as an artist, you w- I wouldn't do that. Why not? I wouldn't do that because people, no matter what people think their honesty is, it's coming from a place of what they think their limits are and how they view the world and the limits that they're deciding to place on you. And I would never, I've done that in the past with things and I've taken advice. People thought I was better suited here or there. And I regret it to this day because that was their opinion based on who I was at the moment, based on, the level that I was developed at the moment. So you're saying basically... I wanted to do comedy. Like, I wanted to do comedy... Maybe when I was, like, 20. I listened to someone who told me they don't think that that's for me. If I had started comedy when I was 20, it would be insane where I'd be at right now. Because I'm very good at comedy. I'm very good at stand-up comedy. But I listened to somebody else who was judging me based on what they knew of my past, what they knew of my current skill set, and what they thought I should be and where I should go. And I will never listen to anybody else's opinion. I will hear, I will keep it in mind, but it will not influence what I choose to do. Well, I, I, I don't think it could, it couldn't, I mean, it must be an influence. You might, you just won't let it dominate. You know, you'll make the final decision based on what you think is best. But I, as soon as you hear something from somebody, I think it, it, it in some way, even if it just a little bit influences you. But, I think it takes some skill to not let it influence you. I think, there, I think it really does take concentrated skill to not influence. You may feel something in that moment. It may discourage you momentarily, but how you continue will determine whether or not it influenced you. That's just been my, I mean, that's just my experience. Because I've had people say things like, you should give up comedy, you should just do music. I've had people say, ah, you shouldn't do music, you should just do comedy. You should do both. And it's like, if I, imagine if I really listened to everything that everybody was saying, it's like, you have to find the still point inside of yourself to find that determination of what you're going to do no matter what. You have to find a way to influence yourself by your life desires. And that's just, it's very hard to do, but I really try to do it because, oh, so many moments that be discouraged or shifted one way. So many moments. And I remember, I remember the things that people say. Uh, very wise. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have an active thought of, 
specifically with music while I'm balancing music and comedy because I've had so many people offer their opinions. And that's why I'm like, I'm going to keep doing both until my heart tells me which one I'm supposed to be doing. I'll know. I'll know. Thank you, Nash. And now, director, writer, cabaret critic, activist, out of Harlem, New York, Jerry Geddes. I think all the good concert artists do, although performing at Madison Square Garden is certainly different than performing at Pangea or Don't Tell Mama. It's, um, but it's a matter of, of conviction and, and uh, investment in the lyric. And I think all the great concert singers have that. Uh, he became a character of himself somewhat, though, so he kind of went too far in the other direction. So he's not always one of my favorites, although when he's at his best, he's amazing. Hmm. And, you know, let's talk a bit again. Let's go back to the pandemic and look at the value yes. of the clubs in New York City to the artists and to to the community um, and how the, the politicians, namely Cuomo and, uh, and uh, de Blasio, how they're uh, handling and, and taking into consideration uh, what the clubs are going through during the pandemic? I actually don't think they are, really. I think they're lumping it together with restaurants. I don't think they're taking the artistic side of it into their consideration at all. And I think they should because it's something that's that's uh, specific to New York in particular, although you know, L.A. has some and Chicago has some, but cabaret is part of the definition of New York. It's a cl- it, you can walk down the street and go into a club and see a singer who you might in 10 years see win a Tony or an Emmy or an Oscar working their craft and learning it. And the disappearance of those places is going to mean the disappearance of the legacy of the performance. So it, not only will people not be able to practice their craft, but they won't be able to inspire younger and different people to pursue it as well, having seen them. So it's it's got a ripple effect that's not going to be conducive to New York returning to its great glory of the past after this pandemic is over. Thank you, Jerry. And now, artist, community activist, and New York City mayoral candidate out of Brooklyn, New York, Paperboy Love Prince. How, how are you getting support? And you go, you just going door to door. I think you have a community center. Maybe is it is it through that center going going out into the into the neighborhoods and talking with people, or is or is it a protest vote? Like I don't like all these elites, these same old same old politicians. This guy seems different. He's from outer space. He's talking love. I'm going to vote for him. It's that I actually am of the people, and I put the work in. I'm really like. These other people that they boost up, they're really not known and not with the people. Like, they just started doing it when they're, like, running from there. For me, I already was, like, super legit in the streets from being with um, being with people, you know. The homeless people on so many blocks know me by name because of giving out food, because of my performances, because of giving out money when I wasn't rich. But I still found ways to help and, um, you know, give back i commend you for that um how old are you can i ask you that how how old are you i go by three thousand. about three Um, you know a lot of people focus on my age because of you know i look like the youngest candidate um in the race but i say i'm actually the oldest i'm three thousand years old i'm moving with 
the intelligence and energy of my ancestors, you mm-hmm. know, and um, I like that for me, the beautiful thing about what I'm doing is it's not about me. It's about the people. It really is. You know, my goal when I get in there is to strip some of the powers away from the mayor's office, strip some of the powers away from the executive branch in this city and give those powers back to the people. Could the people you know, handle I, it though? So, you know, could the people, I mean, a lot of people would say, well, does, do the people I know what, what to do with all that power? Isn't it anarchy then? I, I find that very disrespectful. Can the people handle it? They're not babies. This is their city. This is their city. Yeah. It's I, not about if they, it's about they deserve it. You know, and, and look what with what the people in charge have gotten us. Highest unemployment rate of my lifetime. But look what they've gotten us. Uh, small businesses closing at an alarming rate. Children afraid to even go back to school. Like, can the people handle it? Yes. The people know what's going on. The people can, The people have been handling it all along it's just now that we're in a society where the rich are getting so much richer the poor are getting so much poorer and the politicians went for a power grab during coronavirus they tried to take all the power for themselves we want it back and we want it back now thank you paperboy now educator journalist trans advocate out of the west midlands of england Debbie Hayton. It's hard with gender dysphoria because it causes so it caused me so much mental distress. But to actually uh, reconcile ourselves to who we are and not be ashamed of, uh, you know, psychological differences. I, 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 I hesitate to use the word psychological disorder, which is it's a pejorative, you know, mm-hmm. to say you have a disorder. But really to have a disorder is just not to be uh, it's not to be ordered and not to stand in line to but to stand aside because i don't want to be i don't want to be number 53 in a line of 100 people i want to stand to the side of that line and be myself but that in itself is a disorder because you're not taking your place in the ordered line but it's this it's this idea i guess it's just the the conformity which we try to impose on ourselves as human beings we want to fit in we want to conform and when we realize we're different that cause that's that causes the issues. And I'd like, you know, it's better to celebrate and, uh, our differences than try to, uh, try to conform, I think. Thank you, Debbie. And now, writer, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and cat rescuer, good friend of the program from her place in New York City, Martina Mayok. This has been the whole pandemic. Like I just basically did a, did a performance art piece of like how I felt during the whole pandemic of like, oh God, what do I do? Oh no, what does anything mean? Um, what is what what is the thing to do in during one's finite life? Um, is it, it how do we spend this time? Um, why are we? Why is this the situation that we're in? Um, when will it ever be enough? The, like the spirals of questions have I think like I mean personally for me like I, I had a I had a tough time I like had like a, a I, don't, I don't know if you would call it a breakdown but I had like a um like a really tough period in the in the, in the pandemic where I think um it was a lot of 
questionings of what the life means and where what am I um, what am I doing with my with my time he, here being constant I've always been aware of mortality I think of in terms of the way that I grew up but like it was an extra reminder um, uh, and um, what have been the values that I have rested my life on are they correct perhaps could they be could they be could they be better oh notice that you don't feel there is there is something that feels empty why and like that that question I think has like led most of most of what the pandemic what the pandemic is and maybe that's one's 30s as well I don't know but it seems like it just like coincides my my 30s coincide with a pandemic and so like maybe it's like the ex- outside is the is like what's happening internally to me as well thank you martina and now new york city based multidisciplinary artist director and really fun guy to talk with rob roth hey again it's it's people people are flawed we all are. I am. Everyone. I mean, you never can, you know, you have to keep learning. You're com- constantly going to stumble. And that's the point. And I don't think people, I think it's really about perfection now. Everyone wanting to be, I mean, I feel bad for kids. You have a son. I feel bad for kids who are on social media and everything has to be perfect. Like they don't have this, this development time off camera, you know, like that, that I did when I grew up. Like you didn't have this um or even in the arts like like you know spending 10 years downtown performing and developing without having someone 10 people shoot you on a phone and post it the next day you know it, it, or in school you know these kids like it it has this psychological um effect i think where you're trying you're, you're afraid to almost do anything maybe i could be wrong but rob roth <laughs> Wonder- Here I am on my, my tiny soapbox. No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I love your soapbox. <laughs> so we're just about out of time for, uh, for this conversation. Oh. I'd love to have you on again. Do you want to you want to sum it up with a with a with a I don't know a phrase a word? Do you want to send a message out to the throngs of listeners? Carry on, carry on, keep carrying on. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I can't wait to watch the this, this short film. And, uh, you know, the pronunciation. Am I, uh, I think you did it right. Did I? Vivir in La Habana. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I can't speak Spanish well, but that's, you, you were pretty good. Most people mess it up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Until next time, sir. Have a, have a okay. wonderful spring and summer, and hopefully we cross paths again soon. I hope so. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Rob. And now, black working-class human rights organizer and strategist, co-founder of Put People First Pennsylvania, Nijmi Zarenko. Constituencies that we're talking about in the Portals campaign, that grassroots organizations that are doing base building, that are built by members, that are actually uniting the class across lines of division, that are building leaders, um, there are an increasing number of organizations that have, both have been doing this, this kind of organizing and are, are building it, you know, even building new projects, new organizing, you know, through the Poor People's Campaign. 
And if we are talking about something that isn't necessarily traditional community organizing, it's not traditional trade union organizing, it's really more rooted in, say, the examples of the National Union of Ho the Homeless in the 80s, the way that they organized, the National Welfare Rights Union organizing, and the real organizing of the poor and dispossessed by the poor and dispossessed, those examples from history, which are a little bit different than sort of uh, other uh, community, traditional community organizing, but they're, they're very important right now um, in, in this period that we're facing. And um, do you see yourself uh, running for political office at some point to try to change things from inside the system, or do you like it uh, where you are at, at present? Absolutely not. No, I have absolutely no intentions of ever running for office. And if I ever do, I hope someone comes and just smacks me in the face. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, if you, if you haven't gotten the, the gist by now, um, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think that that has its place. And I think that's a site of struggle that can be important as part of a larger process. Um, but it's certainly not my uh, focus or, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe we're going to be able to vote our way to a transformed society. Uh, I don't believe that that's going to happen simply through getting new and better people into the structures that exist. Um, because, you know, that is, uh, I, I don't. I don't really see that. I don't see any any evidence bearing that out uh, from from my study, from my understanding. Now, of course, I'm not all knowing. Um, I don't know everything. I'm a student, of course. Uh, but based on my understanding thus far, uh, I don't have faith in the concept of we just need to get better people into office, and that is going to be, you know, that's going to be the way. There's nothing that happens without mass movements, absolutely nothing. Um, mass movements are the engine that changes politics and it doesn't, you know, they can, that can change um, who's in office and it can change how people take on stances in office wherever, who, wherever they're coming from, right? It's people that move that are the motor and the engine behind that. So I'm much more interested in um, building, identifying, developing and uniting leaders uh, of organizations and within organizations across the country. Thank you, Nijmi. And now, British-based music journalist and author, speaking with us from his place just southwest of London, Chris Charlesworth. And about a week or two later, the phone rang on my desk in the office, and I picked it up. And he said, and so the voice on the other end of the phone said, hello, is that Chris? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, it's Keith here. Keith Moon of The Who. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> what's, he, what's he ringing me up for? And he said, he just wanted to ring me up to thank me for the good review. And uh, that absolutely floored me, that, that, that Keith Moon would ring me up uh, and thank me for giving The Who a good review. Now, The Who didn't really need a good review at that point in their career. They... They were already massive, you know. Um, but I thought, well, what a nice thing to do. Now, it might be that Keith was, you know, 
trying to sort of butter me up a little bit, thinking, let's get this journalist, this writer on side. Who knows, right? right. But Keith then said, um, let's meet. I'm, I'm, I'm often in this club, and he mentioned a club where he used to go drinking in, in Soho. Um, and he said, come and say hello. And, and I did, actually. A, a, a week or two later, I met him, and I said, oh, you're Keith, I'm Chris Childress, the bloke from Melody Maker. Oh, hello, have a drink, you know. And then he said, look, we're doing a show in, uh, in Hammersmith. That's a suburb of West London in about a, in a few weeks time come along with me be my guest right and so I did I went to this show with Keith in his Rolls Royce car right? uh, and that night I met the other three blokes in the Who uh, and that was it really I was I, w I became the sort of melody makers Who correspondent if you like uh, and so I, I saw them about another 30 times o over the next uh, few years, up, up to the point where, where, when Keith died. Um, and I interviewed them all many times, and I went on, on tour. I traveled with them on, on the road and on airplanes and this sort of thing. And I got to know them all very well. Thank you, Chris. And now, acclaimed film and Broadway actor, singer, writer, and composer from her place in Manhattan, Lisa Carroll. When you went to New York, you know, you had some street cred. You had some, you know, credentials. You, you worked with people like the great Rock Hudson. Did that open some doors for you when you came to, to New York looking for looking for uh, projects? I don't think so. <laughs> I, uh, New York and Broadway is not too impressed with Hollywood. I don't think so. But, you know, it's funny. Uh, someone said to me, Gee, Lisa, you should go to Sardi's restaurant on 44th. It's a theatrical restaurant, and all the famous producers and directors go there. You'll get discovered. So I don't know whether they were putting me on or whether they were sincere, but I dressed up real pretty, and I went to Sardi's restaurant, and the maitre d' would started to seat me way, way in the back. And I stopped him. I said, no, I can't sit back here because I won't be discovered here. I have to sit at the front table. And tables, you see, are numbered uh, by the maitre d'. In other words, if you're real important, you sit in the number one table, which is when you first come in the restaurant, turn left. So he sat me at the number one table, and he covered his mouth because he, he was laughing so hard at what I said that I wouldn't sit in the back. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's a gentleman sitting at a number five table, five by the importance, and he kept staring at me, and he sent over his card. And the waiter said, he wants to know who you are. I said, well, tell him my name is Lisa Carroll, I'm from Bismarck, North Dakota, and I'm a dancer and singer and an actress. And he goes and tells him. He comes back and says, he told me to tell you he's never heard of you. <laughs> I said, well, you go tell him that I'm not famous yet, but I'm going to be one day. I just got here. And the man, he told, the waiter told the man that. He started <laughs> laughing, and uh, the next thing I know, that evening, I dumped out my purse, which I did every evening, and there was his card, producer uh, of Hello, Dolly, wow. David Merrick. Wow. And that's how I got my first audition, 
and got in the show Hello, Dolly. That's... When I was told, I'd be discovered. And even if the person who told me was kidding, that's exactly what happened. Definitely. Wow. What a story. <laughs> and you went by yourself. That's true. You went by yourself. Oh, all by myself. I bought a New York Times and looked in it to find a place to sleep. I didn't... I didn't even know where I was going to stay. And I found a roommate and moved in with her and uh, lived with her until I got an apartment myself. Thank you, Lisa. And now, writer, musician, and our resident social critic from his bohemian locale in the south of France, J.Q., and then they kind of look at you and it's like, huh, he's stealing business, you know. <laughs> that American, um, that American yeah, imperialist. Yeah, plus he's a, plus he ain't from around here, but, uh, or the French equivalent of that. <laughs> but, in old, but uh, you know, it, when you do the markets, it, it's funny because it's, the markets are made up of people who don't fit in or who can't have a boss. Like, that's what they are. You, you, you know, to, to do that kind of gig. You have to have a certain personality type, and and sort of it, everybody's very individualistic and very uh, it's character driven. Let's put it that way, right? There's a lot of original characters on the markets, and you get a vision doing it in in microcosm of how global capitalism works, of the alliances and the the fighting over every little centimeter of territory and and the backstabbing and. And, you know, the, the backsheesh <laughs> with, <laughs> with the people who give out the places, all that sort of stuff. You know, and I've, I've been watching it for years. I've been doing it long enough and I have enough experience. And my, you know, and my stand is small and easy and I only do it a few months a year. So it's very lightweight for me. Um, uh, psychologically and emotionally, I don't have a lot of problems the way some other people do. It's, you know, I, I, I sort of have it easy. But uh, it's very interesting to watch. You know, and, and the way people try to get you in on their side and in disputes and, and things like that. And just how every little nuance of where somebody is placed and, you know, somebody putting a little sign out in front of their stand is going to bother somebody next to them. because And it doesn't really matter, but to them it matters. And, and Territorial, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of like, you know, if you come as a tourist into and the reason tourists come to them, it's charming as can be. You know, there's all these stands, there's all these like homemade things and great food and the local farmers are bringing in their, you know, and the, there's wine stands and there's there's woodworkers and there's people like me and there's jewelry and there's clothes and there's and and it's all sort of, you know, old-fashioned and quaint in a way and, and and very charming and pretty and people hang out in the cafes and the terraces and there's sometimes there's music, you know, there'll be live music playing. It's great. But that's capitalism. It's all window dressing. And behind the scenes, man, people are at each other's throats. <laughs> <laughs> if they only knew those tourists. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the stories are. Anyway, but it's, it's, it's a great gig, though. It's, it's, it's interesting, you know, and it's certainly, certainly better than having a boss. Thank you, JQ. And now, author, professor, and activist from her place in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Toni Jensen. I think the Second Amendment is as important as any of the amendments, and all the other amendments are seen to be more malleable. 
um, and more changing. And I think that that parsing, there was an article recently that I read that parsed the language looking at history of language and lexicon and punctuation. And really, it's a document that was written in a time period for a time period. And there was no way for anyone then to have understood who and what this country would become, right, um, in contemporary times. And so, like any other document, historical document, we have to parse the language carefully and be sure we're understanding correctly. There's such broad interpretation about what the Second Amendment even means or what it's really saying um, that I think we have to be careful there. And then we have to also be careful. We only observe and hold reverent certain pieces of documentation tribal treaties for example mm-hmm. have been ignored right and so if those aren't to be revered and those are written much more clearly generally too than the second amendment you know without a whole lot of room for argument and yet they're ignored but we're supposed to revere as holy the second amendment and it's one interpretation also and so i think that in a modern world we have to catch up a little bit. Um, we have to we have to understand that these historic documents must be fluid and must be must not be held up to hold back our progress as a country and as a culture. And that's what people who are hardline Second Amendment means right to bear arms, you know, including AK-47s, including um precluding having sensible gun laws. I mean, no, I'm not, I'm not for, um, you know, the, the hardline literal interpretation that doesn't take into consideration history and change. Thank you, Tony. And now, puppeteer, sculptor, painter, activist, dancer, poet, from... PMS Farms in Wayne County, Pennsylvania, John Bromberg. And uh, at 95 years old, I don't know why this is a magic number, because at 95 years old is when Helen visited me here on the farm. And then uh, shortly after that, she hit a tree in in, uh, Maine. This is Helen, Um, Helen Nearing. Helen Nearing, yeah, yeah. So uh, she was at she was at PMS Farms. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how much attention you pay to what's around here, but there's a bunch of signs that say "Beware of bunnies." Beware of bunnies is <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beware of bunnies. So okay, so Helen Helen gets here and it's totally dark. I don't know what time it was, but she gets here, and uh, I forgot to bring a flashlight out and and. Uh, uh, so I was very careful uh, to lead her up the stairs because everything here, uh, even even in the light of day, is is hard to maneuver for older folks. And uh, I'm finding that out. <laughs> You're a spring so, chicken. Uh, How old are you now? <laughs> so uh, so she she stumbled coming up the uh, stairs. The, the, and uh, fortunately, I was right there to help her. So uh, she finally gets 
to the house and we have some, a little bit to eat and then I show her the room, the guest room and and uh and uh she probably stayed up reading. She was an avid reader, so uh but I I didn't uh, hang out with her. I thought she might be tired after driving from Maine at 95 years old. <laughs> was she, al- she was she alone driving from Maine? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, she came to Brenpa after Scott uh, passed. Uh, she used to drive from Maine to Vermont uh, for for the for the circus for the domestic resurrection circus to hang out with her daughter Elka and Peter. That's right. Well, uh, it it isn't actually her daughter. Is this is Elka's stepmother? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, Scott's Scott's first wife divorced him. Okay, so because uh, because he had a uh, keenness for women. <laughs> uh, but don't let that get out. I won't. Well, this is going to be. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so, but it's all right, that's right. <laughs> so, so Scott is Elka's grandfather, but Helen is not. Uh, um, Elka. It's her. Yeah, step grandmother. I understand. Okay, so anyway, so yeah. I, so Helen, Helen would came down to visit you in the bunny signs. How, how, we're we're trying to connect. Uh, oh, uh, there weren't any bunny signs. So so she uh, oh she she was startled by a bunny. That's why she almost tripped on the stairs and and uh, I, I can only imagine if she had broken her hip or something. Oh my God. <laughs> No, I don't want to go there. But uh, so anyway, she goes to sleep, and I get up real early anyway, four 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 a.m. every every morning. I thought my father was a complete fool for getting up at four four a.m. But now look at me. So uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, so I went out, and I quick made all of these signs that said, "Beware of bunnies." <laughs> And I put them all around because I was going to give her a tour of the farm. So I spread them out as much as I could. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we have we have breakfast and then we uh, and, and I, you know, let me show you the farm, you know. So uh, uh, so she, we're wandering around and she starts seeing these signs. And she says, uh, uh if I would have seen these signs last night, I would I would not have stumbled coming up the stairs. <laughs> and I said, "Well, it was dark, Helen. You know, don't don't mind that you're 95 years old, but it was dark. You know, so you couldn't see the signs, even though it's white lettering on a black background. <laughs> next time, next time I'll make them in uh, day glow paint." <laughs> So you didn't. Yeah, so you didn't... that was uh, yeah. We had a great time, and then I don't know. It was maybe two weeks later that I was listening to the radio. You know, um, uh, Amy Goodman, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Democracy, Democracy now. now. Yeah. And uh, I heard that Helen Nearing hit a tree, and I oh <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, See, I am blessed like that, Larry, in that I get to see dear friends uh, shortly before their passing. And uh, why is yeah, that a ble- why is that a blessing? Would you say? 
well, you know, I can, I can embrace them, the memory of them, you know, whereas if I hadn't seen them for a long time, you know, it, um, um, don't you agree with me? No, I'm not saying I disagree. I just wanted to understand why you thought it was yeah. a blessing. Well, I do. I do. Thank you, John. And now, bringing us home, our number one guy off the bench, educator, fiddler, and our resident historian, Surf William. Well, we, we all, you and I always come back to this notion of, or at least I bring it up anyway, I, I say, you know, you got to take care of yourself first. It starts with you. It starts with the individual, and then everything sort of emanates out from there. So, you know, be the change, right? Think of some of these, um, some of these sayings, be the change that you want to see in the Mahatma world. Mahatma Gandhi. Right. Be the change that you want to see in the world. Um, love yourself. You know, love your you can't love others until you truly love yourself. So, you know, the messages that I've been getting over the years, the philosophical uh, messages that I and spiritual messages that I've been getting over the years keep coming back to that theme of, you know, take care of yourself first, get your house in order. And then you'll be in a much better position to go out and affect some kind of change in the world that you want to see. And, um, you know, my recent adventures in bushcrafting and and building and, and axes, you know, that was my way of just sort of taking care, nurturing myself, doing things that I found interesting and thought were healthy and um, sort of tuning out. I admit it, tuning out a lot of the noise that we experience in our everyday lives. And we know from the previous president how absolutely um, um, uh, paralyzing that can be and how demoralizing it can be and how unhealthy it can be. So it's what, up to us. Tuning out, you mean? No, tuning in. Tuning in. You know, listening, listening to that noise all the time. We know that that's not a healthy endeavor. You know, we had a president who every day was bombarding us with insanity. And those of us who are really tuned into current events, were finding it to be really a bit too much like we were feeling like we were just being beat down. So I think my retreating into the woods, <clears throat> I think it's pretty obvious, was a re reaction to and a response to the noise that was coming at me from from our from our society as it was over the last four years. Does so that, I was, does that, does that lead though, perhaps to, uh, um, not being involved in the, in the community enough in the process enough, whereas then, uh, scoundrels such as the previous president can, could, uh, control and gain more power over, I guess, over our, over our country, yeah. over our lives. I guess if your reaction to it is to simply drop out, I guess you are. Look, I think I'm a person who thinks everything's political. And we'll get to this idea of like a philosophical grounding in a moment. But I believe everything's political. And I believe if you abdicate your responsibilities as a political being, you are automatically handing them over to someone else. So even the choice to be apolitical is political, right? Because you, you, you need to be politically engaged in order to exercise, in order to <clears throat> exercise your voice and to and to um, achieve the goals that you want to achieve in your society. And if you say, I'm not going to watch the news, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to I'm not going to read about what's going on, I'm not going to take a stand, you're automatically ceding more power to somebody else who is going to get involved and take a stand. 
And there's a chance that that person doesn't think the way you do, is not is not politically oriented the way you are. And so what you're doing, in effect, is you're ceding more power to them, you know, even if only a little bit. But that's a political act in and of itself. So my attitude is better to stay engaged than to completely disconnect and give that other person the power, that other person who might not um, have the same vision of what our society should be, uh, the other person who thinks differently than you do politically. And so, um, you know, my running away was just my way of sort of staying sane and staying grounded. But I by no means dropped out of society. I'm still very much engaged in what's going on in our communities and our, in our country, you know, our larger country. Steadfast, 
stipends on the window pane for those who live this life to benefit from the soul drain. You and me, though, steadfast remain, a different sort of woke folk, dancing in the sun, spectrum, white, snow rain, on the mountains and in the valley villages, all the way through the flatlands to the seaside, watching the high and low tides in stride, basking in the moonlight, as the calm comes, as the wind blows, as the stars know how we flow, where it all comes from, and where it all goes.
It was a pleasure producing for you in 2021, and I look forward to doing some more in 2022. From all of us here at Troubadours and Rock On Tours, thank you. Talk with you soon.